You know, it's fun doing a missions conference because it's always exciting when you're the missionary and it's missions conference and you get to kind of come in and do the big talk and get everybody excited. And I feel like part of what I want to do here is take our theme of taking more risks. And I want to, I want to invite us to look at the story of Paul, who took a lot of risk, but I want us to look at it in a, in a way that we can't kind of skirt past the issue and say, well, that's just for extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, and I can't do that at home, okay? So if uh, the message last week kind of shook you up, today I hope to kind of bring it back here and, and put it back together and do that in a way that, um, you know, gets us inspired to live out a life of risk in relationship right here where we live, right here at home and abroad, as God calls us, okay? You ready to do that? So if you can... Uh, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, it's page 1169. And I'm going to look at this book, and we're actually going to look at the story that sort of prompted this book, but I, I want to start by zeroing in on this main verse of 1 Thessalonians 2.8. You got it? You're there with me? Paul writes in the middle of this letter, and I'll give you some context of this letter later, but this is the kind of theme I want us to zero in on for our time together this morning. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, Paul writes, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Let me read that again. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Let me just pray for our time. God, you invite us into this risky relationship of life in the kingdom with you because of your son, Jesus, and we are grateful. I pray that in uh, the reading of your word today, and in our gathering, that you would be at work, that you would prompt us, that you would guide us. Lord, that you'd bring to mind um, the ways in which you have saved us and redeemed us and the way in which you are doing that in all the, all the world, with our neighbors and among the nations. So Lord, instruct us through your word this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you caught it, I love the, uh, the way that when Jeremy was interviewing Nancy about going to Boston and working among refugees, did you catch it? that in the midst of the fact that um, you know, she's working with a different people group and teaching English, and a lot of these women have come from very traumatic places, that, at the, that the kind of the nut of it, the, the basic element of it, was that they're without anyone who they can call friend. Did you catch that? I think that is a great tie to what Paul is writing to the church when he says, it wasn't just the gospel that we shared, we shared it, by becoming friends. We shared, we shared it by sharing our lives with you. And I think, actually, if you take a look at um, so many of the great stories of missionary life, right? I mean, what comes to mind for me is Corey Tim Boom doing a very simple thing of opening up a secret space for Jews in, in the, during the persecution in World War II in Amsterdam. She and her family opened up a secret room to hide people in to protect them from Nazi Germany, right? And it's an incredible story, but it's actually a very ordinary person, a very ordinary family, who happened to have a little extra space, 
and some compassion and some willingness to invite strangers into their home to keep them safe and protected. And I suspect, this is kind of my theory in, in kind of looking at this, that actually we make extraordinary heroes out of famous missionaries and famous people who have done great things, but there's a very simple and ordinary thing about it, and that is that God uses people, ordinary people like you and like me, as carriers of the gospel message. Okay, so it's communicated through his word. The Holy Spirit speaks into people's lives. But at the base of it, you see so many times when people are the carriers, the communicators, through relationship of the message of the gospel. So I'm wondering if right now you can even think, maybe, maybe picture or imagine somebody in your life who went out of their way, took extraordinary risk, maybe at great sacrifice, to be a witness of the gospel in your life. Can you think of somebody? See, when Jesus talked about the coming of his kingdom, he told stories about people. Don't miss that. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, he told stories like there was a man who was holding a banquet, and the people that he invited didn't come, so he went out and had, had somebody gather up all the people off the streets and off the hedges and the highways and said they need to come in. It was a banquet. Jesus told stories about a good Samaritan stopping on the side of the road to help someone who'd been wounded, bandaging his wounds and carrying him all the way to the end and then paying his costs. That's the story of a human, risky relationship, right? Jesus tells the story of of the father welcoming back his prodigal son after squandering away an inheritance. He stands at the end of the road and welcomes back his son as the son comes home and repents. See, each of the stories, of even the way Jesus describes the kingdom in communicating the gospel message is a story of people risking relationship to be bearers of the, of the gospel. Are you with me? So my main kind of focus here is, yes, Paul has an amazing story, and we're going to get into that now with Thessalonians and what happens there, and going back to Acts and looking at it, but I don't want us to miss the fact that the gospel is something that gets communicated from person to person, and it's something that each of us can do. And I think that goes best when it's grounded in a relationship of genuine care and love and concern and consistency. So, yes, Corey Ten Boom and family, they welcomed people in uh, Jews to protect them from Nazi Germany. But they also think about the, the meals that they shared over many um, evenings, the conversations that they had with people as they were guests in their home. This is the kind of transaction that Paul talks about when he says in 1 Thessalonians, we shared the gospel with you, but we also shared our lives. Okay? So here's where, here's where I want to go with our time. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians but we're really going to look at 1 Thessalonians as kind of the meta-commentary on what happens in this interesting little story in Acts. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about when I say meta? For those of you who are kind of into, uh, if you watch movies or if you, read, if you read books or you do anything where you want to get kind of the backstory and you want to find out what was happening behind the scenes when this was made or what's this actor's story and where did he come from and what else was he in, that's all metadata, right? Well, here we get 1 Thessalonians is a great little letter that tells you some of Paul's backstory as he reflects back on an incident that happens in Acts. So let's take a look at Acts, and we'll get back over to 1 Thessalonians later. Take a look at Acts 17. 
And this passage in Acts can be found on page 1097. 1097, uh, the story of Acts, as Luke writes it, and, and let me give you a little background on the background story here, which is, before we even get to 17, when Paul and, and Silas show up in Thessalonica, they're also in Philippi, and they have a pretty rough experience there. Look at verse 22 of chapter 16. So that's 1096. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So not exactly a warm welcome in Philippi. And there's another amazing story that happens here. I want to fast forward to what happens next. As they leave town from Philippi, they leave town, and look at verse 1 of chapter 17 in Acts. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, imagine, they didn't just come, like, fresh off the plane. They had a little time in the United Star Lounge, uh, you know, refreshed. They got a little shower. They were beaten, bruised had been in jail and were probably running for their lives, and do they take a little holiday? Now, as was his custom, verse 2, Paul goes into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so he stays three weeks, he reasons with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, let me pause for just a moment. Thessalonica was a port town, so it was a really strategic place for ministry to be launched, because about 200,000 people lived there, and uh, it was a great, it was probably the largest port, or one of the largest ports in Macedonia. So, so I think these guys are thinking, we can spend some time in this town, we can communicate the gospel, and it'll probably spread like wildfire from here, because people are coming in and out, and it's a huge trade port. And he spends his three Sabbath days preaching the gospel, and notice what he preaches. And I want to make this really clear, that the challenge that he issues is both about the personhood of Jesus, but also it's a political challenge as well. Right? Because people suspect him of proclaiming a new kind of king. And indeed, he is. But not the way that they expect. Take a look at verse 3. He explains and proves that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. He uses reason. He uses argument. This is Paul's uh, sweet spot. right? And he says, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. But people hear it as a provocative statement about there being a new king, that, there's not, um, that, that there must be someone else other than Caesar. And this is a, it's received as a political threat. When Jesus is proclaiming, this is the Messiah who is dead, buried, and, and is raised, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. So here's the message. Look at verse 4, here's the result. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. So you've got a mix of people within this port city who respond, right? Some of the believing Jews, some of the God-fearing Greeks, and even some of the significant women. Probably, commentators say, women who were um, married to key citizens within town. So like the senator's wives, right, are, are catching on to this witness from Paul as he reasons and talks over a series of teaching in the, in the synagogue. And uh, you know what it does? It sort of stirs people up. So look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Here's, here's the response. They're probably upset that they've got 
Gentiles responding um, in the midst of all of this. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Trying to imagine what that scene would look like in the movie, right? How do you round up some bad characters at the marketplace? But apparently they're really good at it. They form a mob and they started a riot in the city. So it's beginning to look a lot like Philippi all over again, right? They rush to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas. So they're staying with the locals, sharing life with them, as well as the gospel, in order to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 6, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. There's another translation you might have it that says they've turned the world upside down. And now they're here in our backyard. What are we going to do about this? It's a spiritual threat to our way of life. It's a political threat because they're saying stuff against Caesar. Look at verse 7. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when the leaders heard this, verse 8, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. It's just chaos. People are getting, they're, they're foaming at the mouth. They, they have a, a response where they just, they got to do something. And the best thing they can do is, because they, they can't find Paul and Silas, so they, they get the guys he's staying with, and they basically just have him pay a, a bail bond, assuring them politically here, what's happening here is, Jason pays a fine, assuring them that, they'll, that uh, Paul and Silas will stay away and not come back, as long as these authorities are in rule. Okay? So they're chased from one town, and now they've come to this new town, and they're chased out of this one as well. All right? So the story in the background here, just so you know, before we get to this letter in 1 Thessalonians, because really, you don't always link the two, right? The epistles and the, what happens in Acts. And once you realize, oh, man, this is what's going on when Paul writes this letter, what happens is Paul's moved on, and he can't come back. But it was just a short time he had with them, and he really loves them because he, he stayed with them, and he stayed in their homes, and he got to know them. And, and a lot of time has gone by. It's been a couple months and he wants to send them some encouragement. So he sends them Timothy, right? And then Timothy gives Paul a good report saying, hey, these guys are doing really well. They're growing in faith. You see that in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.6. And so Paul writes this letter back to the church, okay? So now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Thank you for indulging me in the backstory there. I think it's always kind of good to know what was going through Paul's head as he wrote some of this stuff. 1 Thessalonians, we're back at page 1169. And let me just tell you if, you, if you want to, I think in one sitting you could sit down and really enjoy reading 1 Thessalonians. Just read it like a letter. Forget the chapter numbers and the verses and read it like a letter. He spends a whole chapter saying how thankful he is to this little believing church that's probably still experiencing persecution. Just because he left town doesn't mean it stopped, right? In fact, they're probably getting a lot of um, questions about what their whole ministry was all about. So he spends one whole chapter in, in Thessalonians, the first one, just thanking God for, for these great people in this community of believers in Thessalonians. And he spends the second chapter, I think, trying to explain and debunk some of the rumors or questions that have come up since he left town. It's almost like it got cut too short and he didn't get a chance to really say what he was trying to do or explain himself. And so he writes this letter to say, hey, in case you were doubting, this is what I was trying to do. And that's why you get chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to look at that verse by verse just to kind of understand so we know what were Paul's motives, what were his methods, and what was the message. We already know what the message was because he was proclaiming Christ. 
as risen and as the Messiah. But he wants to clear up some of the confusion. So look at verse 2-1 and, and notice the familiarity that he writes with. He keeps repeating himself. If you were to take a highlighter just to highlight, you know, as you know, hey, you guys remember, um, you witnessed, it's in this almost in every verse. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you, it wasn't a failure. It wasn't a waste of time. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Right there in that town, as they started to face questions and rumblings of of some pushback from the city, They dared to do it in spite of the fact that they faced opposition. Verse 3, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. So Paul's trying to explain, look, this isn't about um, us being false teachers, because that was pretty common in the day. People would travel from town to town and, and, and share some philosophy and then kind of move on to the next place. It wasn't about impure motives, He needs to make it clear that even though some of the prominent women were coming in response to the ministry, um, that that Paul Paul wants to make it very clear this isn't kind of like some of the other teachers that are out there wandering around who are, uh, you know, kind of a hit with the ladies. This was an impure motive, uh, nor were we trying to trick you. There was nothing false here about what we were trying to do. I want you to understand, in case you missed it because I had to run out of town so quickly, unplanned, that our motive was pure. Look at verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. These are our credentials. This is my calling card. We're entrusted by God to be communicators of the gospel. Uh, We're not trying to please men. Obviously, if they were trying, it wasn't working, was it? Because they were getting chased out of every town they went to. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our heart. Again, verse 5. You know... We never used flattery. See, it was kind of common in those days for teachers of philosophy to blow into town, kind of puff people up with some flattering words about how lovely everybody was and what a nice town you have, and, and then um, kind of give them a couple of teachings and move on. We weren't, we weren't doing that. We weren't using flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. We didn't go there to make money or to, to even gain from you financially. God is our witness. Verse 6, we, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anyone else. Okay, so Paul's clearing up what their motive was. And then he gets kind of into some of the method. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. See, financially, it, would, it was pretty common for apostles to come into town and be supported by the locals as they preached and taught. But here, Paul chooses not to do that. It's, a, it's kind of a poor church. It's a new believing church. They don't have a lot of money. Paul gets a donation from Philippi later on, but he actually chooses to just work in tent making, literally making some tents as a business, working pretty hard, because he didn't want to be a burden to the people he was serving among at that moment. I didn't want to be a burden to you and come and stay with you and have it be a financial hardship. I earned my own way even, so that I could be with you and the gospel would be clear. And then he gets into this lovely pastoral text where you can just hear his heart. And for a guy who uses reason and passion and argument in front of a crowd, when he's writing a letter, there's something very dear and endearing about it. Verse 7, we were gentle among you. That was our style. We were gentle. 
We were like a mother caring for her little children. The translation, the text here is actually like a mother nursing her little children. That's how gentle we were with you. And then the kind of pinnacle text here. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you've become so dear to us. The word here in, uh, in terms of sharing our lives isn't just our physical lives, but we shared, we shared something of our, our soul. We shared a friendship that was a deep connection, even in just the short time we had, and you became really dear to us. Now, I think in today's age um, of distraction and in the hurry from getting from A to B, it's pretty easy to listen to Paul's amazing missionary journeys and the persecutions and the imprisonment and so on and miss the fact that a guy like Paul could do an ordinary thing like become a friend to someone in the midst of communicating the gospel. So does God call us to take great risks? I think he does. And you heard some of that last week. And I think he calls people to face the same kind of persecution and imprisonment and abandonment that Paul and his people in his day experienced, and, they, and God still does that today. But don't miss the other side, which is there's a risk of just stepping out in relationship and in friendship. The risk of actually developing vulnerability with someone as you listen and share time with them. That was also part of Paul's style. We shared the gospel with you, but we also shared our lives. Verse 9, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship. They faced suffering. They worked long nights. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. And now you were our witnesses. Here's the, here's the ministry that they experienced. Now you were our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. So we've got the mother image and the father image both here in the text, and, and their ministry is one of encouraging. This is verse 12, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So they don't use flattery. They could have come in as apostles and, and been big shots. They could have been treated with honor as royal guests, and yet they come in and they, they're gentle and they're quiet. I imagine some long walks, uh, you know, some, some cups of tea, some difficult conversations after a teaching that, that really ruffled some feathers in the synagogue where Paul and Silas spend time befriending them. See, this is the grist of what salvation or, or evangelism and communicating the gospel is all about. Those kind of quiet moments that they don't make it into the big missionary biographies. No one's ever going to make a movie out of it. But it's those moments that we exchange where people become dear to us. And suddenly there's a, almost a mutuality or an appreciation because this person's become my friend. And this kind of clinches it for us. Verse 13 of chapter 2. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, 
which is at work in you who believe. See, there's, a, there's an immediate sort of stepping aside and saying, even when you heard it from us, it wasn't the, the word from us, this was God. And you received it that way. And that's what I love about you. I can hear Paul say, I love the fact that we came to you in this way, you became friends of ours, and you're giving God the glory. You're hearing it as God's word. Paul may have done extraordinary things, but he was an ordinary person who spent some ordinary time in a seaport town. And he came to love the people he was with. And that's the definition of missions. This happened to me, um, just to tell you a story from our own ministry back in San Francisco. Uh, Jeremy mentioned that we had worked with homeless people for a long time. And I was fairly new to the streets in San Francisco when I met a guy named Joe, who was in his mid-30s at the time and had spent half of his life already on the streets. When I met him, he was living so deep back in the Golden Gate Park that um, it would have taken a long time to try and find him. But we became friends slowly over time. And there was nothing special that I was doing apart from making myself available and taking the risk of seeing where the friendship led. I could tell that God was already kind of working on his heart. You know how you can just kind of know that with somebody where you realize, man, it's just a matter of time and this person's really going to step into the kingdom in a new way. And as I walked with Joe, he became kind of a mentor of mine. He taught me the ways of the street. And um, I welcomed him into our house, and he would take a shower there, and he'd have a meal, and, and pretty soon he'd stay overnight and, um, you know, get a good night's sleep, and I'd kind of say, hey, Joe, you know, next time, you're, it's okay. You can take your boots off when you sleep in bed at night. You know, you're safe here. You don't have to keep them on. You're not running now. You can stay here. And Joe actually thought, you know, this is kind of cool. Why don't you learn how to live the way I live? So he, he became my mentor and wanted me to sleep out in the park. And so I rounded up a few friends, and we actually spent a few days living in Golden Gate Park and finding places to sleep and having Joe come out and kind of give us lessons on what it meant to be a homeless person in the park. And he'd introduce us to all of his friends because he's got a heart for reaching his friends on the street. I thought the tables had definitely turned uh, one day when I realized... I woke up in Golden Gate Park after a really bad night of sleep. I was cold, and Joe had been sleeping in my house, warm, snugged up in his bed. And he comes walking up. He's got a Starbucks coffee, and I'm like begging for change. And I was like, something's really wrong with this picture. The, the world has reversed. Joe has been, um, and this is, this is the testimony of God's great grace in his life. It's, it's, not, it's nothing about me. But Joe has been off the streets for 10 years. He's been clean and sober for five or six years. And next month, he turns 50, and though he doesn't have any family to celebrate with, I'm going to fly back to California. We're going to do his 50th birthday right. We're going to go to Universal Studios, which is what he's always wanted to do. Now, that might sound extraordinary because it's a homeless person and, and a person who's struggling with addiction, but I don't want to separate that too much from what I think could be a daily reality for you, the people in your life that if you just stop and take time to be present with and attentive to, God can do miracles. And I want to encourage you to be the kind of person that takes the risk, 
that takes the step that no one else wants to take with that awkward or difficult person at work or the person eating their lunch alone at school or maybe even the person in your own family who everyone else has just kind of written off. I mean, it's risky. I understand that. You, you risk being rejected and if not literally being run out of town, the feeling of being shunned, laughed at behind your back. I understand all of those things. But see, I don't want us to miss in glamorizing the glorious adventures of Paul the fact that he has a heart that says, you know, I just love the time that we got to spend together. We got to share the gospel, and we also got to share life. So who are you in, in one of these stories? Are you, are you a Paul? Are you up for the adventure? Are you a Corey Ten Boom, maybe? You and your family have a little extra space that might be a, a shelter of safety for someone in your own home? It sounds exciting until there's dishes to do or a bed to change. Um, are you a friend like Joe? who just needs somebody to come along and walk with them for a while. I think this is, this is the exciting, risky, rewarding part of missions, and I think we can all do it. Now, if I keep going as a missionary, I might be talking myself out of a job, right? But this is what the, this is what the gospel shares. This is what I love. So I want to challenge you as a church at South Shore Baptist to do three things. Number one, I want you to give relationally. I want you to give your resources, your time, your energy, your sleepless nights in relationship to the people around you. The way Paul did. He worked hard. He faced opposition and yet he gave relationally and he gave with great risk. Secondly, I want to encourage us to go. To go in relationship. To go relationally. You know, I think it's very, it's one thing and I don't want to knock this because I know many of us do it. And, and there's amazing stories of, of God communicating through his spirit and his word and, and, and Bibles and tracts. But if we think that the gospel was communicated by kind of an airmail drop, devoid of relationship, then we're missing the story of the incarnation. Jesus born into a town in a place with a real address and growing up in that culture as a person. So I want to encourage you to go in relationship. You might be um, considering participating in one of the short-term missions teams this year. You might uh, realize that actually stepping out in relationship means being more available to the people at work who are hurting. You might actually feel like God's put a burden on my heart to this people group that's unreached and I I need to pack up everything and sell the rest and, and go. But go in relationship. It always goes better. It's like a flowing stream when it goes in a relationship, a friendship, as Paul writes to his Thessalonian church. And lastly, I want to encourage you to gospel. I probably would have said evangelize, but I had said give and go, and so gospel starts with G. But I want you to gospel in relationship. Do you know what I mean by that? Tell the story of Jesus and his death on the cross and the redemption of sins and his resurrection and victory over uh, death. Tell that embedded 
in the relational fabric of your world with your friends and your family. Gospel in relationship. And finally, let me encourage you, if, you, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, this is all great, but I don't even know if I'm in this spot with Jesus where I'm ready to do this. Maybe you just haven't encountered a Jesus who would risk it all relationally to come to earth and to die a criminal death on your behalf. I want to encourage you to take a step. Maybe to take the, um, to step, a step towards someone here in the church who God's put you in relationship with and just say, hey, I, I want to hear more about Jesus. Because the reality is, as much as I've preached that this is, um, you know, mission is about being present to people and, being, and walking in friendship and relationship, the truth is our love is insufficient, all of us. If this was about me making a lot of friends on the mission field, I'd need to give you your money back. This is about God's grace and God's work and God's relentless love that pursues us way beyond our capacity for for a human relationship. Am I right? Um, if I have time, let me, let me read a, a poem for you that I wrote a number of years ago. And it's, it was written for Valentine's Day. Don't worry, it's not a, you know, a, a secret love poem to my wife. Um, but it is something that kind of puts the limitations of our human love and capacity, um, it, it puts it to the test in light of divine love and the love of Jesus. It's called my Walgreens Valentine. I've got a Walgreens Valentine. I've got a Walgreens kind of love for you. Aisles and aisles of sugary sweet, red cellophane on chocolate treats like Hershey's hugs and almond kisses, conversation hearts with wishes. I've got a Walgreens kind of love. Yards and yards of greeting cards full of sticky, sappy ooze. I've got a cheap and chintzy love for you. I'm pouring out this heart of mine all for $1.99. I've got a Walgreens kind of love. Heart-shaped boxes and cheap balloons. And last year's discount romance tunes all piled up high in my shopping cart from the Walgreens in my heart. I've got a Walgreens kind of love for you. A teddy bear from bottom shelf and sweet perfume to please myself and pink red wrappings, don't forget, and uh, why not, a Chia Pet. I've got a Walgreens kind of love, it's true. I've got a Walgreens kind of love for you. But a Walgreens love, though cheap and fast, is a love that fades, it will not last. The candy melts in sticky sweet, balloons will sink down to your feet and burst. What's worse, the perfume fades, the Fire dies, red wrapping, just a cheap disguise to hide a sugar-coated heart, and sappy greeting cards don't start to speak of love, alive and true. So goes my Walgreens love for you. I know a lover who to Walgreens never went. You'd be amazed how much he spent. Sure, there's good candy, hearts and bows, but he gives a love that trusts and knows and stops and sits and shares and waits. This lover never hesitates. Some may want red cellophane, but I'll take love that fills, feels my pain with crimson blood that trickles down. There were no ribbons on his crowd. While flowers fade and words grow old, he loves relentless 
wild and bold. So intimate, he knows your name and puts cheap Walgreens love to shame. This is the Jesus that we proclaim as Messiah and King that we invite people into friendship with. What a, what a glorious task. What an awesome opportunity for all of us. Let me pray for us. God, you are good in the midst of all that we see around us. You invite us into your story. And you give us this gospel that is born in relationship because you, Father, are, are a lover of relationships. So I pray for this church that you would allow us to step out and risk. Risk rejection, risk being run out of town, risk offending. But also, love, allow us, or God, allow us to risk the risk of, of showing genuine love. Openness, flexibility, adaptability. Openness to change in the face of distraction. Lord, we can only do this by your spirit. I pray that you would equip the church with your spirit, with strength, with um, courage, and that you would do it according to your word for the sake of your kingdom so that you get glory. Lord, we don't ever want to do anything to increase our own reputation or popularity. So God, may your name be glorified. May your kingdom come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.